All righty, welcome back. And a lot of questions today, so we'll just jump right on in. Uh, first question says, based on Matthew 21, 33 through 39, which is the uh, uh, parable of the vineyard owner, had a vineyard, rented it out, uh, um, wanted some return, abused the various servants who went to get it, finally sent a son, abused his son. The question is, some of us uh, feel that maybe this represents our universe and that and that the vineyard is our solar system and Satan was the first person uh, to... Uh, to um, have it, and then the first person, the question is, was Adam the first person sent by God to get the return, and he was abused and, and killed and so forth? Um, that was the, the basic tenet of the question. And my view is that no, it, I, it can't represent those things, because... Um, the, the, it doesn't line up with the story arc of Scripture that uh, Lucifer did not create the earth, and there's no um, there's no record that that um, God created the earth and then gave it to Lucifer first, and then and then sent Adam here to call for it. There's no record like that at all. So the the story arc is that God uh, made Adam out of the dirt of the earth, okay, and the creation week of this planet, and that Lucifer is a being that came from another order, not part of this earth. So er, Lucifer would be an extraterrestrial. Um, whereas uh, Adam is an earth being. So I, I don't see any light in that particular um, uh, dialogue or p- perspective. Uh, I would contend that the laws, and this is related to uh, what we talked about last week with Lot's, when I mentioned in class, Lot's daughters getting him intoxicated and then having uh, uh, sons with him. And this person is commenting on that. It says, I wouldn't contend that the laws of incest were not in effect at the time of Lot. In fact, they came 500 years later at Sinai for the purpose of preventing genetic mutations um, being concentrated in children and so forth. Uh, we, uh, we increase uh, every generation which increase every generation uh, after the perfect couple was created. Right, so mutations increase, and if we have inbreeding, we get problems. Um, Lot was only 21 generations from creation. Half of those were prior to the flood. Uh, In the very beginning, incest was, in fact, necessary to be fruitful and multiply. I don't see Lot's daughters as being evil. Uh, Even Abraham married his own sister, and Lot was only one generation further down uh, uh, genetic corruption than Abraham. Could you please address the view that Lot's daughters were, in fact, evil? I'm missing something. So I've never said they were evil. I said what they did was an act of, of sin or is evil. Uh, it has nothing to do with genetic mutations or incest. What it has to do with is twofold. Uh, there's a distinct difference between siblings or even uh, uh, close relatives and parent-child relationships. Parent-child relationships are on a different order. And typically, I, I don't see any examples in Scripture where um, a parent-child uh, marriages happened. It just, it just didn't happen. Um, even early on, we don't see any examples of that. Uh, also, if you look at the incest that would happen at the time of Adam, the uh, brothers and sisters that would have had to marry, uh, when you live 900 years and you uh, still have normal maturation, a child is adult uh, uh, capable of, of getting married and having children at the age of, let's say, 18 to 20. It could even be earlier, but let's say 18 to 20. Okay, And if you live 900 years, so different sibs can grow up together and move off and come back, and, and they come back at 80, and they have uh, uh, some sibs that are 40, and they, don't, they haven't even met yet, so they don't have the same psychodynamic problems of being raised together as brothers and sisters even. So if we're looking just at the genetic mutation question, that's correct. This question also, though, shows another problem in, in um, processing. It, the genetic mutation question is a legitimate concern, but it doesn't actually apply to the question of Lot and his daughters. And to apply it there could make one justify an action because, well, we're not that far down. We're not really worried yet. You're right. That's why it doesn't apply here. The other element that does apply here, though, is the methodology. And the methodology was one of deception. 
and non it was basically they roofied their dad and raped him okay and that is the problem here they did not get informed consent he was not a willing participant it wasn't an act of mutual love and affection and giving of each other it was an act of exploitation of another person and exploitation of another person is evil so i'm not going to suggest that they were evil human beings but they did an act that was evil and so that's my view of it um, since we are judged, diagnosed by our character and not by our past deeds, what happens when somebody who has a good, sincere, is a good, sincere person has a brain injury that damages them and changes their character, i.e. frontal lobe damage or other types of damage that impact their empathy and they start to hurt and, hurt and damage relationships with their loved ones? Is that person judged by their current heart motive or um, what their heart motive was prior to the accident or injury? So um, this is an interesting question, and um, I, it, I get this most commonly with people who, whose family members get Alzheimer's dementia, and as they become demented, they actually have significant changes in personality and function and may do things that they would have never done before. And my view of this is exactly what you said, that God understands who they were when they had the resources to be able to direct their own behaviors in the way their true heart motives would like to direct them. And so um, the brain injury behavioral problems, in my view, are evidence just of that. This is uh, the person is not responsible for those, and it doesn't have direct impact on their ultimate character development. in my ongoing dialogue with my Sabbath school class, I have a couple that are determined that Ellen White teaches that the final death of the wicked is, uh, is God's strange act. In other words, it means God uses power to kill, torture and kill them in the end. And then they quote a long quotation out of Great Controversy 672-673. Um, and I would, uh, and I'm not going to read that long quotation. Um, the, uh, so, what I would say when you deal with stuff like this and you get a quotation like that, it, it is just like in Scripture. You read the three angels' messages. And when you read the third angel's message about the, cup, uh, the wrath being poured out without mixture and the fire and the brimstone that uh, smoke of their torment rises forever and ever, uh, if you read that in isolation, such readings in isolation can lead to very distorted conclusions. You have to take all these types of uh, descriptions and put them in the context of the larger whole where the Scripture interprets its own meaning. What is wrath? What's the smoke represent? What's the torment? What's the fire? Where's the fire come? And even in this very chapter that's being referenced here, if you go back in the chapter to earlier in the same chapter, um, this author talks about how Christ appears on his throne of burnished gold above the city and the radiance of his glory flat flows down into the city and out through the gates to cover the land. And later it talks uh, in the same chapter before you get to the part about the, the fire and some days or many days burning before you get there. It says the glory of God would be torment to Satan. He would flee from this place and so forth. And so the elements are here if you have the discernment and the larger um, uh, database to bring in to, to, to read to understand that that um, that God is not using his power to inflict this. This is the consequence that comes upon people when uh, selfish, hardened hearts are bathed in infinite truth and love. And it all talks in the same chapter about how when this fire, uh, this brilliance of God's glory that goes out over the whole earth, that uh, at this judgment, all the sins they've ever committed are seen as if fire before their eyes. And, and this isn't some arbitrary thing. Why, is that, why are they seeing that? Because truth is reality. They are now aware of the reality of who they are in character. 
They can't hide from themselves anymore, and they don't like who they are in character. And it torments them to have their guilt and shame, uh, uh, the reality of it, bear in on them because they are still corrupt in heart and character, and they haven't been reborn. And so you put all those pieces together, and some fight the truth longer, which Satan does. And then there's... Uh, and. And then there is a fire in which the elements melt in the fervent heat that Peter describes, and Ellen White uses that language as well. But that fire is the fire that comes after all the people have surrendered their lives back. And, and Ellen White says in another place that, that the death of the wicked is voluntary with themselves. They do not want to live, and the scripture gives that imagery too. They beg for the mountains to fall on them. They don't want to be in his presence. And so um, once the fires of truth and love have burned through all the lies and the selfishness that they have resisted, and they finally realize that this place is a place that I personally, because I like lies, I like selfishness, I like exploitation, the kindness, the goodness, the love, the gentleness I see here, it torments me, I hate it, I don't want to live here, and they surrender back, I'd rather be dead than live in this place. Then the fires of combustion come and go out over the earth, and all the elements melt in the fervent heat. And these are merged together in several places in Scripture, including in Malachi. When Malachi merges the Son of Righteousness rising with healing in his beams of light, but then describes how all the wicked are like um, uh, like um, stubble, and they burn up. Okay, And so we have this fire that is mixed together, the fires of truth and love that heal the righteous, consume the wicked, Nadab and Abihu, and they were consumed with the fire before the Lord. They were still in their tunics, the next verse say. It wasn't fires and combustion. It's only after all the wicked are dead from their own voluntary surrender, because God doesn't take their life from them. He lets them experience what life would be like in his kingdom when he no longer veils his infinite glory. All the righteous are living in it without any harm. The wicked don't like it, and eventually they say, I'd rather die, and they surrender back. And then the fires of combustion come, and kill the wicked. So this is the reality. However, some people don't want that. They, and so you can, how do you approach them? Some people really want a God who will torment and torture. And so if this were true, if the view is true, then you, th- these are the kind of conversations I have. So what you're saying then, if God would simply restrain himself and not actually inflict death upon these people, they could live for all eternity. Sin actually doesn't harm. It doesn't kill. God harms you for it. So God becomes the source of death. And that's the God they worship, the God who is the source of death as an inflicted punishment. And so Satan didn't lie in the in Garden of Eden when he said, if you day you eat, you won't die. No, there's nothing harmful about sin. I'm not saying God can't kill you. He certainly can. But you won't die from, from sin. That's Satan's view. And that's the view of those who take the position that God has used power to kill. No, God has been using his power to restrain what sin does to the sinner out of mercy and grace to give us opportunity for healing and reconciliation so we won't die from sin. It's absolutely a strange act to let them go. Children go that he, he loves dearly. Next uh, question says, what uh, is the symbol, symbolic meaning of the cup of God's wrath? And they put cup in quotation. Jesus asked not to drink. If it possible, this cup pass from me in Gethsemane. Israelites were supposed to make all the nations of them drink from this cup. Uh, all the wicked must drain it in Revelation. It's poured out without mixture. What is the symbol of the cup? Uh, you know, um, you can, it's symbolism. That's exactly right. It's not a literal cup. And for me, what the cup represents, if you're holding something in a cup, is that what's in the cup a part of you? So this wrath that's in the cup is actually not a part of God's character. He holds it, the cup of his wrath, 
His character is the character of love, of unity, of reconciliation, of oneness. But eventually, because of the way his government works, he gives people liberty to separate from him. So far, he has held that at bay. Even the wicked, even Lucifer right now, has not reaped what his actions would result in. But one day, God stops holding at bay and sets them free. And at the cross, why did what was Christ? He drank from or he partook of. Why did he get that? Why? Who chose for Christ to go through the cross? Lucifer didn't choose that. Lucifer would have loved for him to bail out and go home. Jesus he said to Peter, when Peter pulled up the sword, hey, put away your sword. If I don't go through, this is the mission I came to accomplish. I can't finish my mission if I don't go through this. He did not go through the cross unwillingly like the two thieves. He came and voluntarily went through the cross. He chose in Gethsemane, my human emotions are in anguish. I'd prefer not to go through this, but not my will, thy will be done. And he chooses to go through the cross willingly. No one can take my life. I lay it down freely. And Christ chose to drink that cup because it was the only avenue or means whereby God could save the species human and solidify his loyal intelligences in heaven. All things in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross through the shedding of his blood. Colossians 1.20. And so that's what I think the cup represents, God's Strange act. It's not part of who he is. He doesn't want to let anyone go. But when people choose the course, God sets them free to reap what they've chosen. Christ chose to go through that for our salvation. And remember, he couldn't die on the cross unless the source of life separated. That's why why he stayed away from Lazarus for, for three days. If he'd have gone, Lazarus wouldn't have died. The only way Christ could have achieved the death on the cross was for the source of life, his father, to actually disconnect and let him go. This was not a punishment on God's part. It was the joint cooperative effort of the Godhead to achieve the outcome for which they needed, which was in humanity to destroy the death-causing principle and restore the life-causing principle. And that's what was happening there. Okay. I don't understand 1 Corinthians 6.18. It's, uh, it's saying about sexual sin being extra bad because it's against the body, while every other sin is outside the body. Gluttony is against the body. And there is a list of seven deadliest sins uh, um, and no mention of sexual sin. Uh, let's see. Are there uh, hierarchies of sin? Seems to me that all sin puts us out of harmony with life. Should, there, uh, should we be most scared of sexual sin and rest a little easier if we uh, have that under control? <laughs> um, so there are actually hierarchies of sin. The, most, the, uh, the, the worst sin is the sin that you feel no need to be delivered from. And that's the sin of pride and arrogance. I am rich in increase of goods. I'm wealthy and spiritually righteous. I don't need anything. I am a good person. Thank you, God, that I am not like this tax collector and sinner. Okay? Uh, this is the sin that is the worst because it sees no need. And, and all White describes that in Seps to Christ, that the sin of pride and spiritual arrogance uh, are, are, are worse than the what you consider the more... Um, Base sins like, uh, say, a sexual sin or um, a uh, an addiction, because often those people actually feel shame and guilt from their sin, and that leads them to repentance. Oftentimes, um, they're not happy with their circumstances, so seek a solution, and they will often seek Christ. Uh, but when it talks about the sexual sin uh, being against your body, 
my paraphrase, this is how I, I, I paraphrase this to try to bring out the reason why this sin is, is described as being uh, a, a more serious sin. Recoil and flee from sexual immorality. Don't you realize that sexual sin is different from every other sin? Human sexuality is sacred. It, is not, it not only reveals God-like love and creative power, but it's designed to bond beings together in unity. Those who sin sexually not only misrepresent God, but damage their own brain, body, that's the, the action against the body, and its ability to bond, thus undermining their unity with Christ. Don't you comprehend what is happening? Your brain and body are designed as a complete unit to be a sacred temple for the Holy Spirit who comes from God and lives within you intimately in a bond of sacred love. You are not a self-originating or self-sustaining being. You belong in intimate connection with God. It costs God an infinite price to restore this connection with you. So let God and his love be revealed in the way you treat your body. So the idea here being, neurobiologically speaking, when you engage in sexual activity with another person, you actually um, release uh, oxytocin. It changes the, um, um, uh, the, the love circuitry in your brain, your reward circuitry. You make a bonding connection with that person, that that person has greater um, uh, affirmation. You feel closer to them. You, you get a little bit more dopamine when you see them. It makes you a little happier to see them. There's an actual neurobiological shift that happens. If you have um, either pornography addiction or you have lots of sexual partners, this circuitry gets damaged, and it's harder for you to actually make these deep bonds of, of affection and trust with somebody. Uh, the brain can heal from this, but it takes a period of absence, and then actually um, you can move forward and you can form bonding. But, but the, I think this is what the Bible is talking about. Since I apologize for asking a question that has been asked a million times, I understand the rationale of Jesus' death as our remedy for our terminal condition brought about by sin. But what is the exact mechanism of this, though? How did he destroy death and the power of Satan through his death? Uh, what does his sacrifice translate into... How does this sacrifice translate into a redefinition of the human race? So I encourage you to go to our website, type in the search engine, why Jesus death, why is Jesus' death necessary for God to heal me? And I wrote a long blog on this, uh, explaining this. I will mention some things right now, but I think you will find some additional uh, helpful uh, insights in that blog. And I encourage people, when they do have questions, to always check our blog uh, and type in your question in our search engine on our website, because I have blogs hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them going back more than a decade now that answers many of these questions. So I really do encourage you to go there and see if you get your answer. Um, but when Adam sinned, the, the condition and nature of humankind changed. Uh, the principles that life are built upon, you might call them the laws of health, but the laws that life operate upon were displaced, and the law of sin and death were now the primary driving force in humankind. What's the law of sin and death? It's the opposite of the law of love. It's the principle of fear and selfishness. Without intervention, the humankind and all life on planet Earth would die. God did not leave the human species of the planet. He immediately interceded there in Eden with grace to hold at bay the powers of evil. Satanic forces were held in check to a certain degree. He interceded in the um, hearts and minds of human beings, putting enmity between human beings and Satan so that we have a conviction of wrongdoing, a desire for something better, dissatisfaction with evil. Without that Holy Spirit intervention, right in Eden, putting a desire for good, humankind would have made a perfect confederacy with evil angels and been hardened permanently. And that condition is a terminal condition. And then he interceded with the condition. By, be, by becoming human and taking the condition upon himself, uh, he 
uh, was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin and with each temptation, Christ chose with his human abilities to choose love and reject the temptation of fear and selfishness. And at the cross, he is faced with a choice. Use power to save self because he had the power. He wasn't helpless like the thieves. He could call with a snap. He could just think. He didn't even have to do the old twinkle of your nose thing. Okay? He just had to think it, and he could have destroyed his enemies and saved himself. But if he saves himself, then the motive of self-preservation or self-centeredness is not eliminated out of the species human. He, came, he became human. And so he destroyed that infection of fear and selfishness in the humanity that he took upon himself. And this is why he was able to predict his rise again, because he restored perfectly the law upon which life is built, the law of love. And he rises again in a humanity cleansed and purged by his own free will choices. And this is how he saves the species. The species of the human race is saved in the individual person of Jesus Christ because he was a real, living, flesh and blood human being that lived sinlessly and perfectly and destroyed the infection. And then he becomes the source of salvation, says in Hebrews 5, uh, 9, that once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Uh, He is the... Um, vine, we are the branches metaphorically. He achieved perfect, sinless human character. When we identify with him through faith, the spirit takes what he achieved, reproduces it in us. We are metaphorically reborn, recreated, have new hearts, have new motives, have new desires, have new abilities, because we have the power to make a choice, and then we are given divine strength to follow through with the choice to love others more than self. And thus we are transformed in that process. But all that is a gift of Christ, so it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Okay, next question. Some people are always late, late for appointments, late for dinner, late for work, late for church. What is the problem? Can anything be done to motivate some, uh, motivate them to be respectful for those on time? Uh, I suppose they can be on time for some times, but when, uh, when threatened to miss out if late. So um, some people are always late, and there's a variety of reasons why people are late. Uh, variety of reasons. There's not a single reason. I'll tell you, uh, clinically speaking, there, there's one condition when untreated often uh, causes people to be late, and that's a, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And ADHD people, it's one of the symptoms that they're always late. And the reason they're always late is because they have a difficult time organizing themselves, prioritizing uh, that uh, with ADHD, every thought that comes in their mind has equal value and has equal urgency and has equal importance. And so when a thought comes into their mind, what happens is and they see stuff around the house, um, uh, so they're they, they're getting ready to to go to the appointment, but then they see that the uh, that the dishes hadn't been put away yet. Oh, that that's equally important as getting ready. So they got to put those away first, and then they see that that laundry wasn't carried over here, and they left that, and they got to take care of that, and everything you're doing. And then pretty soon they don't even realize, and it's already ten minutes late, and they go, oh, I got to get late, and then they run out the door. This is kind of what can happen with ADHD, and so treating ADHD um, can help uh, people actually um, learn how to be on time better. Um, if you have somebody in your relationships that is predictably five or ten minutes late, you don't argue, you don't fight, you simply always tell them that you want to leave 15 minutes earlier than you really want to leave. And then they will be ten minutes late and you still leave five minutes early. Okay? <laughs> and you never tell them you're doing it. You just do it. Yep. And it works. It works beautifully. I can't tell you how many patients I've told to do that. Okay. Um, why... Uh, Okay, will there be atheists in heaven? My son doesn't believe in God, but has a good heart. The Bible tells us we must believe to enter heaven. So the way you framed your question, I'll answer it, but then I'll answer what you actually meant. 
Okay. Will there be atheists in heaven? The answer, of course, is no. Everybody in heaven will actually believe in God. They'll see him face to face and they'll believe him. So there won't be anybody there who goes, I don't believe that God exists. Okay. Um, but that's not actually what you meant. Uh, what you meant was, will there be people who are atheists on earth that actually make it to heaven? And then they're no longer atheists, right? Okay. Um, and the, uh, my understanding is, yes, there will be many. The Bible tells us in um, Romans 2, chapter 12, those who have not heard the law, Torah, Scripture, but do by nature the things contained in the law, are law unto themselves, showing that the law has been written upon their heart. And what's the new covenant? I will write my law upon your heart. So the Holy Spirit is bringing truth of God's principles and methods, which are truth, love, and freedom, how we treat others, as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me, to all hearts and minds. Those who resonate with those principles and begin to practice them uh, they are considered children of God, even if they haven't heard the gospel message, or they've rejected some version of Christianity. So, you know, some people believe an atheistic view because the only Christian view they've heard is an imperial legal view of a punishing God who'll torture you in hell, and rejecting that view actually makes them closer to God than the ones who believe that view. Because God's not like that. So, um, I look, um, uh, so yes, the answer to your question is there will be people who on earth were atheists that will be in heaven. How important is keeping the Sabbath? Will this not be a big deal in the end of time? Sunday keepers versus Sabbath keepers. And I'm going to skip down because somebody else asked a Sabbath question. We're going to put them together. Hi, Dr. Tim and homies. Uh, I like your most recent blog on the Sabbath and its symbolism. Is, is there too much focus on the symbolism or is it my 37, is my 37 years of the Seventh-day Adventist that keeps asking um, the but questions? Uh, I went from an evangelical non-denominational in my early days to Seventh-day Sabbath because of my simple conviction of the true Sabbath. Uh, and it quotes Exodus thirty-one fourteen: observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you, so forth and so on. And if you don't, you, people will be stoned, six days shall do labor and all they work, etc., etc. So questions about the Sabbath because of my blog this week. It is not a question of which day is the Sabbath. Any, any conscientious person knows. I think the question is whether it's an issue. And this Sabbath is an issue for its purpose. The Sabbath, as it says in Scripture, is a sign. That's what it is. It's a sign or an evidence or a mark of what? Of the covenant. What, what's the covenant? Of the relationship. What's it built upon? Upon the law. Upon the kingdom. Upon the methods. And so the Sabbath... Given in the context of a war is a sign of God's methods that he presented truth and love and created a day where he rested or stopped using his power, showing his kingdom is a kingdom of religious liberty, truth, love, leaving people free. And the Sabbath keepers are those who practice those methods in how they treat others, period. That doesn't mean that the seventh-day Sabbath is anything, is a different day of the week. No, it's sunset Friday, sunset Saturday. But you can have the right day, honor the right day, shut your businesses down on the right day, not do any work on that day, even pushing an elevator button, because you don't want to spark a fire. And when Jesus off the cross, because you just killed him, and you want to keep the Sabbath... Shutting down your businesses and all this other, it really has to do with the motive of the heart. It has to do with the motive of the heart. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
If you're doing this to advance self, as so the Sabbath functionally each week is an opportunity for those who love and trust God to shut down their self-advancement, their business, their money-making, and trust God that they'll be fine even though they're not working that day. Trust him with the outcome. That's what the Sabbath functionally is about. It's an exercise of faith. But when we make it in, so it goes back to which law model you view it through. My blog this week was all about resetting it, so you start viewing it through the design law model and its real purpose. And the two days that, yes, are the two days important in what they represent. Just like a U.S. flag has value and a Nazi flag or the old Soviet flag represents something else, but the actual materials that they're made out of, the colors, the numbers of stars and stripes ultimately are relevant. What's relevant is the kingdoms that they represent and the principles that they stand for. And the Sabbath represents, if you take the Sabbath day that was given as a day of liberty and you turn it into a rule enforcement of an authoritarian God that if you don't keep the right day, he'll be required by law and justice to torture you in hell and kill you, you are actually promoting Sunday keeping. Because Sunday keeping became a day of worship, not by creation and design. It became a day of worship by legislation. And thus, the Sunday as a day of worship is symbolic or a flag of imperial, religious, king of the north. That's what it represents. Rome, Babylon. But many people uh, observe Sunday as the Bible Sabbath. They love God and they honor him and they shut their businesses down on that day. And thus, they're actually waving the flag of the Sabbath because they practice the principle of truth, present in love, and lead people free. This is my view of it. It really is about the method you practice in your heart. And so remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. If you have a big old wild sinful party on the Sabbath, have you made it less holy? If you go to church and only sing praise songs for 24 hours every week on the Sabbath, have you made it more holy? So is there anything we can do to make it more or less holy? Are we actually keeping the whole, Sabbath holy? Are we keeping ourselves holy? We're keeping our, and can you keep yourself holy one day in seven? No. True Sabbath keeping is the principles of God written on the heart that the Sabbath is a sign of that you live all week in how you treat others. They're the true Sabbath keepers. All righty. So... Um, Mrs. White wrote somewhere that I cannot find it, but that Satan knows our plans and because we speak, because we speak them out loud. Uh, I know that uh, God has overcome Satan, but it makes me worry a little. If you uh, know your enemy's tactics, uh, you should use them uh, to your own advantage. Could you comment? Uh, my comment is Satan is not an omnipresent being. He's a limited being and he can be restrained and restricted. And if you're concerned about this, then you should simply start your cons- councils, meetings, plans, board, m- board, whatever, with prayer, asking the Lord to send his angels, hold Satan's forces out of here so they can't be a participant and hear what you're saying. And God will honor those prayers. Do you think baptism of the Holy Spirit... Do you think the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues like they did in their church is for the church today? So the evidence in speaking in tongues, as I understand the, the scripture, is that they spoke in different languages. Or rather, they, it should be the gift of ears. Because they spoke one language and everybody heard it in their own language is what was happening there. 
And so um, uh, that certainly can happen. I've heard of, of cases in certain circumstances where a person was given a gospel message and somebody in the audience heard it in their own language. Even though the person was speaking English, they heard it in a different language. Uh, that would be the gift of tongues. And the Holy Spirit can do that when it's necessary to do that. Um, so, yes, that can happen. But I wouldn't uh, uh, use that as a sign or an evidence of anything. Love your enemies. Some people are so difficult to love, relatives, co-workers, friends, spouses, neighbors, or perfect strangers. When these people are toxic, violate boundaries, bullies, abuse, lie, display behaviors that are not healthy or generally unkind, uh, we know it is best to sometimes maintain space with these people. But sometimes you can't. You can't. Work, relatives, etc. How do you love these people? Uh, what does it look like in real life? Having healthy boundaries often, uh, oftentimes is necessary. You're absolutely right. Uh, healthy boundaries are necessary. I encourage you to go to our website on the search engine. Type in um, loving others. What does it look like? There's an entire blog where I go through scenario after scenario after scenario. One of the problems is people don't actually understand what, how love functions. Love is not about having other people be happy with you. Love is not about making other people feel good. Love is about taking actions and governance of self that in your judgment, led by an enlightened Holy Spirit, enlightening your mind, uh, are designed to be beneficial to the other person. And those actions may be the actions that cause the other person to wail and protest and call you the son of, son of Beelzebub, like they did Jesus. Okay? Or the daughter of Beelzebub. Uh, so if you're focusing your actions on the other person's responses, you will almost always act outside of love. If you focus your actions on understanding the principles of God's kingdom and doing what's right because it is right and right doing is pleasing to God, uh, and you're seeking God's guidance in your actions, then you will often have people be very upset with you, especially the dysfunctional, because they do not like healthy boundaries. But that's what love does. And so I encourage you to read that and uh, apply those principles. Um, Babylon and the king of the north, and it, Babylon and the king of the north. And if so, what would be the point of uh, what? At what point should we come out of her? If Babylon is king of the north, what point should we? Yes, Babylon, I think, is the king of the north, and it's the principles. And what point you should come out as soon as you realize you're in Babylon? And the coming out is coming out in your mind and your heart and your methodologies and the way you see the world. Come out of seeing the world through the lens and the church and what Christ did and the atonement and all that God is doing and seeing God. Come out of seeing it through an imperial dictator imposed law view and begin worshiping Him who made the heavens and the earth and understand that God's laws are design laws, and that's coming out. Um, and I think we're going to have to close because we're way over time. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you so much for your truths. Thank you so much for what you have revealed to us in your scriptures. May we um, represent you faithfully and fulfill your purposes for us at this time in history. We pray in your holy name. Amen.